The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. Any statement that talks about a chicken, we know, underlies an egg. Well, the egg is positional truth, and the maturity of the Christian is the chicken, right? So when we see the practice of the Christian, we know behind it is positional truth. So we've been looking at the, we're, just the statement, the, the, the outright statements of positional truth are all through the New Testament. But when we begin to look at these statements of Christian life, positional truth blows up even more, doesn't it? And that's what we've been finding. Now, we've come to the book of Hebrews, and this is written to Jewish Christians. They're Jewish Christians. And we've been introducing this the last few weeks. And as I showed last week, many people say, oh, who cares who it was written to? Clearly, it's not important because the author didn't tell us. God didn't want us to know because... It's not stated in the text. Okay. Now, again, I told you these are not fighting words. If somebody wants to say, hey, it's, if they want to say that, I'm fine. Hey, fine. We're not going to fight over it. But I'm going to tell you that through what we've shown you the last few weeks, I think it's very obvious who wrote it. And I think those that don't accept that, they leave it, oh, just who knows, they really miss out on some very important truths that we see from it, okay? Now, I'm just gonna very quickly go through some of that as review, okay? And uh, we followed kind of Ironside's reasoning, and I don't hate it, it's, it's good, I think it, it makes sense. But again, it's, it's, it's interpretive, okay? So he makes the point that Apollos, Barnabas, and Priscilla are three options that have they, people put out as potential authors of the book. Um, he throws out Apollos because Apollos was from Alexandria, and never do you hear the Church of Alexandria saying, our guy wrote that book, which is kind of absurd if Apollos wrote it, okay? They would have said, they would have been surprised at that, and they would have said, our guy, never do you hear that in any early writings of anybody. Okay, next of all is Barnabas. There's just no evidence of this. Okay, there is a spurious letter that's not included in scripture called the letter of Barnabas, and the letter to the Hebrews is of a different style. So Ironside throws that out, okay? The last one is Priscilla, a woman from the book of Acts. Nothing wrong with it. She's a woman, but one one of the persons that suggests it's Priscilla that says, suppose certain dainty touches. So dainty touches in the sense of a woman wrote it. Okay. This is just absurd. Okay. What dainty touches? Okay. Now on the flip side, to me, when I translate in the Greek, even some people say it can't be Paul because the vocabulary is so unique. Okay. It's not the vocabulary of Paul. Well, that's baloney. The style is Paul. The thought is Paul's. And the reason you have the unique vocabulary is because of the audience, the Jewish audience. He's losing using a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. And that's the reason it has unique vocabulary. But when you look at the, the, the sentence structure and the circular reasoning that, that Paul often uses, not circular in the sense of bad reasoning, but circular in the sense, Paul often does this reasoning where he'll state a fact and then he'll circle around saying why this is a fact and why it's so. And then he'll hit it again and emphasize it. And then he'll go off in another way that proves his point and then hit it and emphasize it again. And then he circles back around and then he hits it again. <clears throat> okay, I see this all through the letter and you'll see this as I as we teach through the book of Hebrews emphasizing positional truth i think it's a huge okay so all that's that okay then this is harry ironside's reasoning he says 
you have three quotes, quotations of Habakkuk 2 in the New Testament. And he thinks that these are uh, three messages that go together that Paul did over his ministry. Number one, the just. Romans 1.17, who are the just? And Romans tells us that. Romans tells us who the righteous are. There's none that righteous, no, not one. Who are righteous? Those who believe in Christ. You receive a righteousness, the righteousness concerning Christ, right? The next message is, he quotes Habakkuk 2 and Galatians 3.11. And his, he says, this is a message is, the just shall live. How do you live? By the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how the just live. By the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Galatians 3, right? And then the last part of the message is, is the book of Hebrews. By faith. The just shall live by faith. And his reasoning is, Paul wrote the first part of the message. He wrote the second part of the message. So clearly, that's Harry Ironside. That's not me. He wrote part three. Okay, that's his reasoning. Now, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 18, Peter says many hard things that Paul wrote, right, to you. And Safer is a commentary commentator ironside schofield all three of these guys and i put me too lol <laughs> we all agree we all agree this is pretty definitive that paul wrote the book of hebrews okay last of all the secret mark at the end of the letter if you go and we did this last week we read through all of us read right and it was perfect it was a sign from god no <laughs> Every one of us read the last few verses of every letter that Paul wrote. And what ending does the book of Hebrews have? Exactly the same. But it's not the same in the book of Peter. It's not the same in the letters of John. It's not the same in Jude. It's not the same in... Yeah, are you getting under... Are you understanding? Now, any one of these things is not like proven... But when you start putting all these things together, it's a preponderance of facts, isn't it? It's a lot of facts. It's a lot of things. Answer me this, right? It's a lot. Now, this is all kind of ancillary information, okay? Society stuff. But my, the, the, what I, the biggest thing I put the weight on is the very evidence of scripture how Paul went to Jerusalem in Acts 21 and he writes the letter to the Galatians on his way there. Do you everybody remember this? He's uh, got he's got it in his mind that he's going to make it back to Jerusalem to go to the feasts. He's not supposed to go back there. He's told by revelation several times, do not go to Jerusalem. And on the way, he hear, he has some emissaries from Galatia come to him talking about the Galatian problem that they're trying to mature by the flesh <coughs> by keeping a part of law, which was a perversion of law. And he, at that time, I believe, and this is interpretive, first of all, he goes off and he walks between two cities instead of going on the boat. He goes on a walk. I believe he, by, go, by himself, he leaves his entourage, about 10 people or more, and he goes off by himself, and he writes the book of Galatians with his own hand. What's significant about that? I think he's being moved to go to Galatia, but he chooses not to because he wants to go to Jerusalem. When God was trying to move him to go to Galatia to deal with that Galatian problem in person. But he so wants to make it to the feasts. All right. He goes to the feasts in Jerusalem. And what does he end up doing? He takes a Jewish vow. And I believe after writing the book of Galatians, that at that point, he should have been telling the Hebrew Christians. It's time. It's time to leave Jewish religion and live in Christ. There's not two methods of the Christian life anymore. It's just one method of the Christian life. 
one way to live, no longer two ways, no more dichotomy. The transition is over. Instead, he ends up getting put on the shelf, going to Caesar and being imprisoned, right? And then many years later, I, between his first release and his second imprisonment, I believe is when he writes the book of Hebrews. I believe he does it from Ephesus. I just believe that. I'm just throwing it out there. I think after he gets out of prison, he goes back and visits the saints there that he had spent the most time with, almost three years. About where, where's the part about him walking and leaving the That's in Acts. Well, I can answer you later, but we, it's in the book of Acts. Um, so I believe the reason he does not explicitly put his name here on the book of Hebrews is because they knew who he was. Number one. Number two, he wasn't appealing to his apostleship because it's an apology. He had already come down to Jerusalem, and every time he goes to Jerusalem, he deferred to James and John. He considered himself the least of apostles, one born out of due time. Why? Because he had killed Stephen in Jerusalem. He had gotten authority from the, the, the priests in Jer the Sanhedrin to go to other cities from Jerusalem and and round them up. When he'd gone back to Jerusalem, he leaves. They were scared of Paul, the one that had Porthos. You guys all remember Porthos, the one of the musketeers, the devastator, right? Porthos. He had devastated the church. And he was, you know, I killed your loved one. I killed, yeah. And now I want you to listen to me. Okay. That was part of Paul's, what the cards he was dealt. I don't have to deal with that. Okay. All right. So with all that said, let's in, enter into the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter one. And this is what we'd like to cover today, Lord willing. Chapter one, this is my type. This is not in your text, you'll notice. This is my interpretation. Chapter one, Jesus Christ himself established the Christian's position at the right hand of God. We're going to see number one, Jesus Christ is a son. We're going to see the significance of that. Number two, Jesus Christ himself established the Christian's position. Number three, the Old Testament validates Jesus Christ's identity. And number four, God the Father validates Jesus Christ's identity. Now, if you look in a typical commentary, they'll say, Jesus, the revelation from Jesus Christ is greater than revelation from angels. I agree. I agree. But when you're looking here at the book, at this, why did Paul write about this to the Hebrew Christians? Why? They're Christians already. Why do you got to talk about this? Okay, I want you to think for a second. Yeah, but if you are a Jewish Christian and you've spent your whole life growing up under law, and number one, they believed in Jehovah, right? Jehovah, one God. What's the, uh, how's the shame go? Jehovah, your God or our God is one God. But when Jesus Christ came on the scene, that kind of changed that, didn't it? It didn't, but it changed their understanding of that if they were Christian, right? And Chapter one really emphasizes that if you look at it, it's kind of repeated over and over these quotations of scripture where it says the Lord said unto my Lord and God said my God. And you have these conversations between God, the father and God, the son, which show that 
it wasn't just one person that was God. It was two persons that were one God in those verses. See? So it's a stat, and, it, and the, the chapter comes out real strong that the son is the one who died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. And that one is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. So as a Jewish Christian, Paul really emphasizes this, right? And that one did something very important for the Christian, which we're going to see. It's reiterated several times. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why is that important to the Christian? Because it's where we are seated. It's where our new life is hid. Okay. I'm telling you right now, this is what this first chapter is all about. It's not explicitly stating it. But it is, I'm going to prove to you today, and you can either put your amen, amen to it or not. I will prove to you today that that's what this is trying to get, where it's leading our minds. Okay? So Hebrews chapter 1. Stay with me, folks. Stay with me. We read. Let's just read it together first. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by a son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom all also he made the ages, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, these first three verses, the very first thing they do is, they emphasize God, and then they emphasize this person who is a son, and he is the one who came and died for our sins, and he sat down in the place of privilege himself at the Father's right hand. So it's establishing a commonality between the Father and the Son and his sacrifice for our sins, right? Huge emphasis there in those first three verses. Keep reading. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time? So now what he's going to do in these passages is he's going to, a couple different things. Number one, he's saying that Jesus Christ is the same as Jehovah. They're equal. But then at the same time, he's saying he became a man and died for sins. But because he did that, it's all part of the plan, is what it, it was really what it's saying. It was all planned out, prophesied all through the Old Testament. And this is the guy. This is the guy. This is the guy. Jesus Christ is the guy. He became a man and he did everything the Old Testament said he would do. And he's still God. Okay. So as you keep, as we continue to read, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I given the occasion. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when the when he bringeth in the, fir the firstborn, or the inheritor, into the inhabited earth, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels... He he says, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But under the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is into the ages of the ages. He didn't say, oh, you're just another spirit. <laughs> he said, thou throne, O God, is for into the ages of the ages. A scepter of rightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, O Lord, according to a beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but you remain. So looking at the eternality of the sun. And there shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shall thou fold them up. Just like a vest, you, you take it off and you're done with it. You fold it up, put it away. 
well, God has a purpose for this universe and it will uh, be used up and it will be put away. And they shall all be changed. They shall be changed. And thou art the same and thy year shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. What's the unspoken thing here? He did say this to the son. That's the, it's, you know, he said, it's in a question. Which of the angels did he say this to? But to the son, he did. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to do a service for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Okay. Now, now I want to go back and I want to kind of pick through these things. And I think it really does lay out the conclusion that I've already shared with you. This is about Jesus Christ's identity and his, as his identity being Jehovah, son of God. And then upon his resurrection, he became Lord in Christ, the Lord of the body, the one who's resurrected and glorified, exalted, resurrected and glorified, head of the church. He established a position at the right hand of God where we are seen to be also. Now, going back to the beginning, um, there's so many things, but if we're going to just spend one week, a chapter on this, I don't know that we will do that, (laughs) but I would like to spend a week on chapter one. Um, There's so many points we can emphasize, uh, but there's only, you know, we speak out of a part, as Paul says. Um, We can't even, we can't even begin to think that we can be comprehensive. But in verse two, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgress, I'm in chapter two, I'm sorry, one, two. So verse one, God who hath sundry times and in diverse manners spoken times past unto fathers by the prophets. So he goes back and he's he's saying, see how he doesn't bring his emphasis to himself. Everybody see that? Typically you would say, Paul, an apostle, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ writes to you. But here he doesn't. And again, for the reasons I've already stated, but he appeals to God and God brings revelation and he did it through prophets. And ultimately he speaks as the authority that comes from the son of God. Okay. Do the Jerusalem Christians care about Paul's identity as Paul? Are they, is that going to lend to them listening to his argument? No. He'd been a murderer in reference to the Jerusalem church. He'd been a stumbling block to the Jerusalem church. But who's the greater person to appeal to when it comes to revelation? The son of God. The one who is the originator of revelation. Right? And that's what we have here. There's a reason why. You know, now if it's not Paul, this to me doesn't make sense. Why do you appeal? What's the reason that he doesn't? It's not stated. Okay, and you just say, "Oh, God just didn't want us to know." I disagree. God gave me a mind, and I think this the shoe fits. Okay, and if you disagree, that's okay. We're not going to fight about it. I know. No, no Indian wrestling, no, uh, none of that. Okay. We'll just keep going. He goes on in verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, again, bringing importance to the identity of Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation of the father. Because why? They're one God. When he hath himself purged or cleansed our sins so that speaks to his humanity sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high we're going to emphasize this idea of sitting down on the right hand later we're going to go through these different occurrences of this so we'll come back to that but he goes on uh 
verse four, being made, uh, what I'd like to emphasize here is that he himself sat down. He sat down. Nobody, he didn't, he sat down of his own power. Okay. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The idea of inheritance, we could spend so much time there. Okay, and we'll hit some of it as we go today, as we look at some of these quotes. And then we jump into verse five. This is where I'd say the validation of Jesus Christ's identity by Old Testament writings. Okay, the Old Testament validates the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Jehovah, as the one who would die for sin and raise again. It's all validated. His identity is this is who he is. Okay. And that's going to be the, the validation in the end for changing how you live your life. If you believe in the identity of Jesus Christ and he changed the way we're to live, well, it's time to change the way you live. Right? You can't really go to a higher power. You can't really go to a higher decision maker. When I was with uh, Frito-Lay in sales, they always would teach you when you go into the building of a business, go to the highest decision maker you can find. Okay. And there's lots of good reasons for that. We, you, on the opposite side, when you go to a Walmart and you try to sell at a Walmart, they teach their people, give the lowest decision maker to the person that's trying to sell something to the store. That way, when you tell them that yes, and they put the display up in the store, the higher person can come and rip it out the next day. Okay. So very frustrating as a salesperson. That's why you go to the top. If you can. Now, if you do go to the top at a Walmart, they'll make you do a big runaround where they go, oh, I'm busy. Come see me at this time. So you have to make an extra trip to the store. And then when you get there, oh, he's on lunch right now. Come back in an hour. And so you've spent, right? The point is this. You can't go higher. Christ is God. And he has established our position at the Father's right hand. He himself. Now, that, why is that important to the Jewish Christians? You're talking about changing the way you were brought up with from a child, the very manner of your life. And Paul's trying to get them to change to a new way of living. And he's going to do it through the whole book, but he's very smartly coming out and starting at the top. Jesus Christ changed. He was the son of God and he became a man. And now he's the God man. He himself changed his manner of living. Okay. All right. Let's look at these. Starting with, I might, um, can somebody read? Somebody turn to Psalm 2, and somebody, okay, let's start with Carmen. Why don't you turn to Psalm 2, 7. Um, Jen, can you turn to 2 Samuel 7, 14? And then Gary, can you turn to Psalm 104, 4? And then Leslie, can you turn to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7? Tim, if you could turn to Psalm 102, 25 to 27. I'm going to ask Gordon if you can do Psalm 110, verse 1. Okay, that'll do it for now. Okay, go ahead, Carmen. Psalm 2, 7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Okay, so that is a quote. The quote that's being referred to in Hebrews 1, 5. It says in Hebrews 1, 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I given the occasion. 
And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay. Uh, Jen, if you could read 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of the son. Okay. That's the children of men. Thank you. So that's 2 Samuel 7, 14, called the covenant in Psalm 89, verse 3 that Christ would be Solomon or David's greater son, right? But it would really be the father's son, right? Gary, uh, 104.4. He makes his messengers win, his ministers reclaiming fire. Okay, this is the passage that hebrews 6 and 7 is referring to let's go ahead and read and again when he bringeth in the inheritor into the inhabitor he says and let all the angels of god worship him and in the angels he says who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire okay, again showing he's better than the angels but that this one this one is God, the promised one. And we come to the next one, Leslie, mom. Psalm 100, did I say uh, Psalm 45? There we go. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Does it keep going one more? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, what's interesting, if we go back to Hebrews 1.8, it says, but unto the Son, it kind of interprets it for us, but unto the Son, he says. So this is the Father speaking to the Son. I don't think the Jew understood that. They were just kind of confused. But here, it's interpreted to us. But unto the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Except, and it goes on. So you have two persons of the Godhead in two places in here. You have it up in verse 5, and you have it in verse 8. He's addressed as God, thy God, and up above where the Father is speaking to the Son. Then you come down. Verse, so we just read uh, Psalm 45. Tim, if you could read 102. Long ago, you established the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years never end. Very good. So this one, it's talking about Jesus Christ before he was Jesus Christ, when he was the second person of the Godhead, the son of God. He is God. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an ending. This is who he is. But this one became a man and died for our sins. You Hebrew Christians, for your sins. He cleansed us of our sins. And he rose again. And what did he do at that point? Did the father, you know, at this point you're going, are you just going to repeat verse three where it's, and he sat down. He's God. I mean, that's what we've just read through the whole, he's God, he's God. The father spoke to the son. He's God, he's God, he's God. Right? And you think, oh, as God, he does what he wants to do. And he's going to go sit down on his throne again after coming off his throne and becoming a man. But that's where it's very interesting to me. The father invites him to sit. There's another, this is the third time you have the conversation between the father and the son in this passage. After having died on the sins of the world, is sin so bad that the identity of the son is impugned? And he is not welcomed alongside of the father. No, in fact, the father invites him to sit. 
that doesn't speak to the lightness of our sin. It speaks to the greatness of the sacrifice. You get that? So in verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand? See, we don't read, we don't think about what he had just done before this event. This event is past. It's already happened. He's already sat down at the Father's right hand. It happened. If you go back to verse 3. When he had by himself cleansed our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And then you come to 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Wow. If you read that flippantly, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed. You haven't begun to internalize what is being said there. Our Lord and Savior being God, became a man, took on himself the sins of the world, yours included, was victorious over that, and then went back to, from where he came. And he established a place there for us. That's what's unspoken here. And I think it's what it's all about. Okay. What? I'm missing the signal you're trying to give me. Okay. So we're in Hebrews 1.13. Hebrews 1.13. Now, I want to follow the line of truth in the New Testament about the right hand. Okay. Because I think in the book of Hebrews, it occurs before or five times. Which shows that when it's introduced here at the beginning of the book, it's a major theme through the book. All right. Will you give me that? Okay. It's a major theme through the book. This idea of being at the right hand of God. Now. First off, the idea of the right hand is the place of privilege. Yeah, you can reference 1 Kings twenty two nineteen 19. When. Uh, you have the spirit beings gathering in heaven. Uh, they're on the right and the left. And you have lying spirits, so demons, and you have others. Okay, I assume the lying ones are on the left. Okay, you might even say it somewhere. It's kind of like the black hats and the white hats. All right. Now turn with me over to Acts. Two. We're going to read from verse 30. Actually, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and is tomb is with us unto this day therefore being a prophet and knowing that god had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up christ to sit on his throne he seeing this before spoke of the resurrection of christ that his soul was not left in hell neither his flesh did see corruption this jesus hath god raised up whereof we all are witnesses therefore being where by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens. So he's telling you, this is not David speaking. This is Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what this is saying. But he says himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, 
sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Christ got a new identity upon his resurrection, exaltation, and sitting at the Father's right hand. What was that new identity? It's not Jehovah, which Lord is equivalent to, but it's Lord as the head of the body of Christ. And Christ, not the title Messiah, but Christ, the glorified, resurrected one. Okay. He got a new identity. Still being God and man. Okay. Turn with me to chapter five. Back. Mm -hmm. We're going to read from verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Verse 31. Him hath God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so it is also the Holy Spirit whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. All right. So Peter talked about this. He knew that this was a huge thing that Christ is at the right hand of God exalted. He's there right now. He has a new identity. And this is the God of the Old Testament. And he's not at the temple in Jerusalem. That's kind of in that kind of the other unstated comment. If he's up there at the right hand, well, he's not at the temple then, is he? So what's the importance of the temple? Why are we thinking, why are we so superstitious about this temple? God's up there. Right? That's going to be important when it comes to the letter to the Hebrews. Because they're trying to gather at the temple and they're getting all upset because they can't meet there anymore. Because they're being pushed out of there. Okay. Turn with me to Acts 7. We're going to read verse 54. Actually, verse 51. Be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the righteous one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Man, that sounds weird. <laughs> but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, who? Stephen, right? Looked steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He's not sitting here. He's standing. He stepped out of the light and said, behold, I, Stephen, see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand, or literally out from the right hand of God. You guys know what that statement is an allusion to? 
it goes right back to Daniel chapter 7. In the vision of Daniel, the son of man. That son of man, that's where that, that term originates to. It's talking about the coming Messiah, the coming one who would be God. He's the son of man. And where is he? He's in the place of privilege, exactly where he went and sat down upon dying for our sins, being raised and being buried and rising again the third day. And he sat down, and at this point, he steps up, steps out, so Stephen can see him okay, in this vision. Now, Turn with me to Romans 8. Starts to get interesting. Hopefully you guys are already interested, but it's gonna, we're gonna ramp it up now. Okay. We're gonna take it here and we're gonna put the pedal to the metal. Okay. So Romans 8. Stick with me. Romans 8. Let's read from verse, why not? So let's just drop back to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, the ones loving God, to them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We kind of talked about brethren earlier in the book of Hebrews. It's related to this. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then you just hear the echo effect, right? Who, 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 who can be against us? No one. It's silent. Bring it on. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? To me, this is like when you hear the story about the genie, right? You ever heard the story about the genie when they were a kid? If you saw a genie and you got three wishes right what would you wish for right and as a kid you're going first thing i'd wish for is unlimited wishes right because you always hear the story how about something happens and they accidentally ask for something and they didn't mean it to be one of their wishes and pretty soon all their wishes are used up right Right from the start, you get the best thing. You get Christ. That's kind of what it's saying here. You got Christ. What else do you need? It's pretty cool. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's chosen ones? It is God that declares righteous. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even... At the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He is buried, died, was buried, rose again, rose on high, was given to us, and we're given to him. That's another passage, right? He's up there, not just twiddling his thumbs. It's been up here 2,000 years. I'm getting bored. I've been waiting. Hurry up and wait. Because isn't that what it says? Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? So he's up there waiting. He's up there waiting to be the king that's going to smash the nations. That's what he's doing. He's waiting up. But he's not up there waiting. Turk twiddling. He's up there doing something. He's up there doing something. And what is he doing? He's up there living for the church 
He's dead. What got him to get up when he saw his saint being persecuted to death? He stands up and gets up. How cool is that? It's like a personal invite. Time to come home, Stephen. There's a, as Tim was talking about the death of saints, there's actually a verse in the Old Testament. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. I'm probably quoting it slightly wrong, but that's the idea. It's precious. It's not a penalty for Christians. And that's an Old Testament passage. But death belongs to us as Christians. It's not something to be afraid of. Then it goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or nothing in this world, nothing in between in the in the anything in the realm of time. All these things, anything, any circumstance, anything in this that can happen in the realm of time. None of it, because where are we when we're in the third heaven at the father's right hand? We're outside of time. We're outside of circumstances. We're outside of the temporary. We've been elevated to the realm where there is no more game overs. Okay, I, there's no gamers in here, so I shouldn't use that illustration. <laughs> as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God planned it, the Father planned it, the Son achieved it. We're loved by the Father, we're loved by the Son in those passages. Turn with me, Ephesians 1. And we read verse 19, and what is, this is the prayer of Paul, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above. So this is a little different passage. The father is setting, is sitting him at his right hand. So other verses say that Christ actively sat. He was not set. But here the father this shows that the divine three persons, at least the Father and the Son, I think the Spirit is in agreement, in the Son establishing our position at, at the Father's right hand. They're all in agreement that the Son should sit there, that the work is complete. Is right in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. You see that? That's the establishment of our position at the right hand of God when Christ sat down. Up to this point, you might not realize that that's what he was doing when he sat down, but that is when. The church was established positionally. Okay. It's right about this time that Christ sends the spirit down to earth. Acts 2. Okay. This is the fulfillment of the prayers in the upper room discourse. When Christ says, I go to send another comforter. In that day. This is the day. Which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all things in all ways.
Now jump over. We're going to skip Hebrews 1, 3 and verse 13. Jump over to Hebrews chapter 8. We just have a couple more verses to hit. We're almost out of time. Hebrews 8. In verse 1. Now the things, and I told you that the idea of the right hand hits in the book of Hebrews five or so times. Yeah, five times. We're going to look at the last three times. Two of them are in the first chapter, and then it's going to be reiterated in the eighth chapter, the tenth chapter, and the twelfth chapter. Okay. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is, so see how, it, again, what did I tell you about this idea of the right hand of God? It's it's a main theme through the book of Hebrews. And what does Paul, the author of the book of Hebrews, say here in verse 1? Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He's summarizing. Okay? I didn't just make this up. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens. <laughs> Turn over to chapter 10. Now, if you read up above, you have this idea of the earthly priests in the Mosaic law. They kept having to come back over and over and over because they never took away sin. Their sacrifice only covered sin. Okay. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, many times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he hath offered one sacrifice for sins into forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected into perpetuity or forever them that are being sanctified who is that who is that it's us So this sitting down is directly related to his offering. You see that? His one sacrifice. Turn over to chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who instead of the joy that was set before him. Now, I'm going to propose something to you. When it says uh, who for the joy, the word for there in the Greek is anti. Anti, it's a preposition. Anti, um, here it would be translated instead of. Okay. Or some uh, the interlinear translates it against. Okay, against can be opposition or substitution. When against, it can be against in location or opposition. But I would take this against in the sense of instead of. Instead of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. See that? What was the joy set before Christ? Before he went to the cross. You, you have two things from the Old Testament perspective. The suffering and the glory. The crown and the cross. 
right? What's promised him still? The crown. The, 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 the reign. And what's, what's he waiting for? The father said, sit, and I'll make, according to the Old Testament, that's all this net. The next thing is, the nations are your inheritance. But he hasn't taken that yet. It's his right. But instead of that, he endured the cross, because that's part of the eternal covenant, which is going to be mentioned in the next chapter. That if he would be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, then he would have a flock that would have, that would be like him. That's what you have in the eternal covenant. He set aside one thing for a while that he looks forward to, to have something else he also looks forward to. But to get it, he had to suffer. That you'd be obedient to the father and show love to the father But because of that, he is set down at the right hand of God. He's in the place of honor. He's in the place of privilege. I got one more place to look. Turn with me to Colossians 3. Before we come back to Hebrews and wind this up. Colossians 3. Verse 1. Maybe you're sitting here, man, Josh, you're just doing some mental gymnastics. You're just pulling all these verses together that you want to make it mean what you want it to mean. I don't think I am. I, this is a simple word study. We just followed the passages through scripture. Since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of god set your mind on things above not on things on earth for ye are dead and your life is hid with christ in god when christ is who is our life shall appear then she also then ye shall also appear with him in glory turn back to hebrews But then you come back to Hebrews and you go, Josh, I'm still not sure. We just we had these passages about Christ being at the right hand of God. We talked about all these verses where the father spoke to the son and addressed him as God and Lord. And how does this relate to us? Are you just, you're saying this all relates to our position in Christ. And yeah, I am. Just look here. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to do a priestly service for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Who is that? That's us. That's the whole purpose of this. This letter is written to believers who are of Jewish ancestry, who were raised under Judaism and are now Christians. And they need to be taught that they have a new identity and a new way to live that is completely separate from law. And to do that, Paul has to appeal to their reverence and respect of Old Testament scriptures and what's going to bring them over into a new way of living. Their respect of the person Jesus Christ as God and as man as the one who died for their sins, was buried, rose again, and established a new position and a new standing before God for them. Everybody with me? Everybody see the, the line of reasoning through that? I think it's solid. I think it's solid. I think this makes sense of what is happening here. And it fits. So, any questions, any comments? What's that? Right. Total? I can tell you in a minute. There we go. <laughs> That's quite a few. 
That's quite a few. All right. Close. Yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for it's such you take us to great heights. And when we look into your word, it's not boring. If we really dig into it, we get if we really value the scriptures, then as your word and the words that you want us to know about your thoughts, and we get to just think of some of your thoughts, we're just so privileged, Father, and it is exciting. Uh, we just thank you for these things, Father. Amen.